Okay, well, uh, welcome to our evening uh, with The Afterword, uh, a podcast which is a conversation about books, reading, and the church. If you've been uh, following us over the last 18 months, uh, you've been enjoying some interviews with some authors. And uh, this evening, I have with me uh, Drs. Stephen Coleman and uh, Todd Rester, uh, fellow colleagues here at Westminster Theological Seminary. Stephen's a colleague in Old Testament. I spend most of my days correcting his Hebrew. Uh, And Todd's a colleague in church history. I spend most of my days correcting his Latin. Um, So good to have you with us on the podcast, Stephen and Todd. Uh, You've written a book, or edited, I should say, a book, Faith uh, in the Time of Plague. And uh, we're going to be discussing that book this evening. So uh, thanks for joining me uh, for this. I want to start by noticing that the book doesn't actually have a subtitle, which is quite rare for a book these days. And I was thinking, in a sense, the title sort of speaks for itself, Faith in the Time of Plague. Um, One of the things struck me at the beginning of the book is Greg Poland's foreword. Uh, Greg Poland, for those of you who don't know, uh, is a physician scientist at the Mayo Clinic, and uh, he writes the foreword for the book. And he starts with an interesting quote by the father of modern medicine, uh, Sir William Osler. He says, Humanity has but three great enemies, fever, famine, and war. Of these, by far the greatest, by far the most terrible, is fever. And uh, what struck me about that was he picked out fever from fever, famine, and war. And I wanted to ask you both, uh, do you agree with him, uh, having uh, edited this book on writings on the plague? I would say yes, I do agree with him. Uh, In some measure, you can think through wars and famines. As they're unfolding or as they're occurring, they're avoidable. Um, If you you need to get away from a famine, if you can relocate your family to another market or another area, you can survive the famine. Or if you see a war coming, you might be able to get out of its way. Mm-hmm. But fever, especially as you read through the lives of these writers in this book, these authors, uh, they, it affected them, it affected their family, it affected their children, it affected their congregations. And it was hit or miss in some ways from a human perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seemed quite random. One was taken, one was not. Mm-hmm. And, and that opened up all kinds of conversations about the terror of death mm. from, from fever and plague and suffering. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if in other ways, famine and war, maybe you see them coming more easily or more mm. clearly, whereas fever sort of appears out of nowhere and starts mm. ravaging a city or a country. Yeah, I wonder if also there's a sense of a fever being internal. So internal mm. to who you are and where the danger is inside me. Hmm. You could potentially get away from dangers that are outside you or flee to a place of safety, a place where there is food. But when the illness is inside, where do you go? Hmm. And it can be, I think, deeply psychologically disorienting and Hmm. fear-inducing. Yeah. Well, you've produced a a beautiful book, lovely cover, 450 pages. So what I'd like to do is try and orientate uh, the listeners, uh, our audience this evening, to it by asking s- simple questions of uh, when, where, uh, who, what, and why. Okay, so 
faith in the time of plague, uh, when? What period do the writings in this book cover? They start in the 16th century. You have writings here that span from Luther, uh, writing in the 1520s and 30s, all the way until the late 17th century. They're not just in one location. Uh, you've, you have writings here from uh, in Luther in Germany. You have Switzerland. You have places in the Netherlands. Uh, you have writings that are coming from the, the British context as well. And so that we, we wanted some writings that reflected not just the experience of one particular section of the church mm -hmm. at a particular time, but represented uh, the perspective of many different Reformed writers in this, in this period, transnational in orientation. Mm -hmm. yeah. So 16th and 17th century. If I can just correct my, yeah. my colleague on his uh, history here. We also have one piece, Todd, from the, the uh, third century. The appendix. Oh, yeah, the, uh, the appendix. Uh, In the appendix. <laughs> Written by the great Cyprian, who we'll, right. we'll come That's to right. later. Uh, but you're covering mainly 16th century, <clears throat> 17th century. Uh, you've mentioned a few places there, Todd. Uh, so continent on the continent in Europe and British Isles. Is, that, is there anywhere else, or are those the main places? Netherlands, Germany, British Isles. And, and then w the, the reference to Cyprian, in part, was due to the popularity of that work in, that, uh, in the period of the 16th and 17th centuries. And so, of course, the, the, the Cyprianic plague spans from about 250 to 266 AD in North Africa. Hmm. And modern scholars today, the reason we know about that plague is only because of the writings of Cyprian. Mm -hmm. uh, which is an interesting point. And uh, so the, this was part and parcel of the experience of God's people in this time frame, mm -hmm. and they were reflecting themselves on earlier works of Christians on the suffering of the church in times of plague mm. in prior ages too. Yeah, so nothing new under the sun, really. The, the, the plagues of the 16th, 17th century weren't the first time the church had experienced something like this. I'm thinking all the way back to biblical times with the plagues in the Old Testament. Um, let's talk about the severity. So you've 16th, 17th century, so you're spanning over a 150, 200-year period. Was it the same plague that was spreading through different parts of Europe and the British Isles, or was it a different plague? And what was the severity of the plague? From the if you, if you detail out through the footnotes in this work, you will find medical references all across the 16th and 17th century, which as a modern, as a translator, even of the 16th and 17th century, I am not an expert in early modern medicine. And it, even, when I think, even when I think I've got it right, it's still confusing um, because of some of the medical practices that mm -hmm. are involved. Uh, but we don't know what kind of plague this was. We don't know if it was uh, consistent form or if it was various kinds uh, hmm. because of the varieties of presentation. Uh, sometimes there wasn't, um, there wasn't consistency in the time of year that it occurred. Hmm. Uh, there were different vectors that it seemed to occur among people. But the bubonic plague that most people know of from the Black Death in the 14th hmm. century um, is primarily came in three forms, and the most deadly of which had a survival rate <laughs> of less than 5%, and the one that was the, quote, most benign had a survival rate of 25%. So it was, it would, it was, hmm. it was exceedingly uh, difficult to escape in the 14th century. By the time you get to the 16th, 17th century, um, 
you could have 25% of the population that could die from a plague like this. We know of accounts in Switzerland between 1600 and 1640 where whole communities would be affected by the plague. Congregations would lose 25% of their population um, every five to seven years. And so if you were a minister in that context for 20 or 30 years, you've gone through a cycle where you've lost 25% of the village, mm -hmm. 25% of your ministry context in one period of several months or a year. Mm. Um, most people in this time frame would, if they live 75 years, would spend probably about 15 to 20 years of that period dealing with plague and various aspects of the civil ordinances that would come down in times of quarantine and times of uh, plague. Mm. So this was a part and a feature of, of the 16th and 17th century mm. that I think would be striking to us because something like COVID is so new in one sense mm. to our experience. Mm. But for them, it would been a, a plague of that level of severity, which was much worse than what we have today. Um, would have definitely shaped the way that they're talking about comfort, the way they're talking about God's sovereignty, and the way they're thinking through um, congregational life. Hmm. So if you were a pastor during these times and you just maintained the numbers in your congregation over, the, over your pastorate, you were basically a, an amazing church growth pastor. <laughs> to basically maintain the number of people they would have been losing. It, it would have been viewed as the, uh, the kindness of the Lord for it to be so. Yeah, yeah. You would have had the right to write a book on church growth uh, <laughs> during that time. Yeah. How about Thanksgiving? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, Stephen, tell us who, who is in the book. Some, some well-known people and some lesser-known right. people. Right, yeah. The, um, probably the better-known of the pieces in here, Martin Luther's Whether One Can Flee, uh, Deadly Plague, certainly made uh, some increased circulation during uh, SARS-COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, Zwingli's uh, the uh, plague, what's called the Plague Hymn, translated into multiple languages uh, for mm -hmm. its popularity. Uh, it was uh, written by Zwingli. Uh, either when he himself had been struck by the plague mm -hmm. or perhaps immediately after. Mm -hmm. uh, we mentioned Cyprian earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we'll talk about him, him more, but uh, Cyprian would probably be a more familiar name to many. Uh, less familiar names, John Rowlett, uh, an Anglican uh, uh, parish minister, uh, Gisbertus uh, Futius, a Dutch Reformed theologian, uh, probably more familiar to some than to others, uh, but an incredibly important figure in the uh, 17th century, uh, Hornbeek, uh, Rive, uh, Beza would be uh, more mm. familiar, but there are mm. some, certainly some less familiar mm. figures and names. Yeah, and um, I think Ludwig Lavader, mm -hmm. uh, Henrik Bullinger's son-in-law, and um, Zacharias Ursinus, who we're probably more familiar with, with the Heidelberg Catechism. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Jerome Sankey, where, did, where was he ministering? Well, Jerome Zanke was an Italian convert to the Protestant Reformation, and he spent most of his time operating in, um, in the Swiss context, as well as mm. in um, much of his writings were used throughout uh, Switzerland and among the German Reformed, and was referenced with high praise throughout the 16th and 17th century mm. in other Reformation contexts, as in England and in the Netherlands. Mm. So he's a, tremendous play he's a tremendous figure in that regard. 
Okay. So we looked at when, 16th, 17th century, where, continental Europe, British Isles, um, who, you've named some of the key players. Uh, what documents are in this book, Stephen? Uh, is it, are they all of the same genre Mm-mm. that you've compiled? Yeah, or, uh, yeah they're quite diverse, and uh, I think that that made it a more uh, fun project for Todd and, and me. Uh, we have letters, mm-hmm. uh, at least two letters, sermons, you mentioned Lavater's is a, an mm-hmm. excerpt from a sermon. C- uh, Cyprian's piece is likely a sermon. Uh, there are treatises, uh, numerous treatises. There uh, is a hymn, Zwingli's mm-hmm. hymn. So uh, quite a diverse mm-hmm. uh, body of, of, of uh, genres of diverse language. And you've uh, you've grouped the first four mm-hmm. uh, together, uh, the ones by yeah. um, Beza, Reve, uh, Futsius, and uh, Hornbeek. One's a treatise, one's a letter, one's a treatise. They're coming from the 16th century. One yeah. goes into the 17th century. Hornbeaks from the 17th century. Why did you group those four together? Yeah, those were actually grouped together by Hornbeek himself. Huh. Uh, as he was writing his piece, he, he compiled it together with those other three. And those four were published together in 1655. Huh. And it was that work that served as the, the seabed for, for what became this volume. Okay. We, the original vision was just to uh, yeah. to translate that those four. Was his title faith in the time of plague? No, no. no. <laughs> it, it it was exactly what you see there. Various uh, tra- uh, treatise of various theological tractates <laughs> on uh, theological tractates on the plague. It was just that hmm. simple. It was a pamphlet. Yeah. Uh, the first part of the book started as a as I was reading through some of the uh, material from the 16th, 17th century. I mean, if you're a historical theologian and a pandemic breaks out, one of the first things you do is say, how have we thought about this in the past? That's one way you know you're a historian. Um, what, are, what are the things that are on the horizon in this time frame? And as I was working through these pieces, what gave rise to part two, in large part, was these were the pieces that Hornbeck uh, and many others were referencing. So the Lavater piece, the Luther piece, the Zonkey piece, the Zwingli piece, all of these others were because of their, of their prominence in that first set of part one, hmm. um, such that if, if you have three of these figures referencing Zonkey, it would be helpful to the reader to have that hmm. um, in his exegesis on Philippians. Okay, so you've basically given us the, the, the first edited volume and then given us the source text that the edited mm-hmm. volumes referring to a lot. Yeah, what quickly became evident that these were their favorites. Uh, Mm -hmm. We couldn't possibly have included all the pieces that they cite and that were clearly influenced by that they Mm -hmm. thought were important, but some sort of rose to the top. Mm -hmm. And uh, it it were those that we focused on. Yeah. Uh, Now, it's a big book. It's 400 or 400-odd pages, or sorry, 370 pages. Um, We're all busy people. Pastors are busy, elders are busy, theological students are busy. Uh, why do you think this book is still important? Why do you think we sh- should have it on our shelves? Why do you think it should be a book that we either read, dip into, use as a reference? I think the starting point is to say that sometimes theological topics like God's sovereignty or predestination or providence or some things like that, sometimes they're divorced from the context in which those ideas developed. And when you understand that, um, yes, the Heidelberg Catechism comes out in 1563, 
But the pious meditation on death that, that Ursinus writes in 1564 is at a time when the plague is ravaging up and down the banks of the Rhine. And so that the, the theme of comfort that you find in Ursinus that he so treasures and he appreciates from many of the Lutheran catechisms, um, and he brings that into the, the Heidelberg context, it's in a context of plague and suffering. So the conversation about comfort in this life and death Mm. is most poignant when you're facing it. Uh, so that the point about plague is that it is a test case pastorally of where God's sovereignty is, needs to be talked about, mm. where uh, the importance of the Christian community is, is discussed, the, the role of repentance. One of the first mm. things that all of these writers touch upon about plague is that it's a trial and that the Lord's calling people to repentance generally mm. and globally as these things break out. So one of the starting points in this discussion for these men pastorally is to have the conversation about the need for repentance. And that breaks out into the discussions about what is the nature of a fast? What is the nature of congregational repentance? How do you prepare for death? Hmm. You know, one way to know that you're in the middle of a plague is when the pastor starts advising people to take out a will. <laughs> That's a reference point for us When's the last time we had a sermon where the conversation starts with, prepare to die today? Hmm. That's, a, that's a very poignant reminder of the severity in times past, and that the doctrines that we treasure from the biblical text um, have a context of development, hmm. that these ministered to people, um, and they can again. So the timeless character of this book, I think, is the fact that it points in times of trial to the reservoirs of where this comfort mm -hmm. and where this hope and mm -hmm. where these things are found. Mm. I think what struck me today as I was reading through the book preparing for the interview was most or nearly all are pastors mm -hmm. who wrote it. So I think that in and of itself shows us the relevance for us today that this is not just some academic sitting in his ivory tower idolizing or theorizing about how to respond to a plague should it happen. These are men who were dealing with it mm -hmm. on the ground, real life situation, and writing something that was needed in the moment for their people. Um, that was one of the things that struck me. Yeah, yeah I was uh, struck by a, a comment by one of the uh, our friends who was kind enough to plug the volume for us, Dennis Johnson, mm. uh, who said something to the effect of uh, wishing he had had something like this when he was in seminary. He had he'd been teaching in seminary, I think, 30-plus years or, or mm -hmm. something. But thinking about the challenges of the COVID pandemic that, that those have presented to churches mm -hmm. and feeling like uh, many of our churches are ill-equipped to mm -hmm. think deeply and theologically and biblically about, mm -hmm. about these challenges, I think has uh, uh, raised a sort of red flag for us. And, and are there questions that we should be asking and addressing and thinking through um, in ways uh, that are different from the world? Hmm. Yeah, I think the thing that struck me was that um, plagues and diseases, I think you, you say, uh, or it's quoted by you, Todd, uh, Greg Poland quotes you in the beginning, in the forward, that diseases and plagues shaped the lives and ministries of mm -hmm. these pastors. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned earlier some plagues went for 15, 20 years that these pastors were living through the cycle of these plagues. Um, 
they had also shaped the architecture of churches. Do you mm -hmm. want to talk a little bit about that? Well, if you in, in a letter to a friend, André Rave, who was a Huguenot who had been trained in Switzerland and then was ministering in a Dutch context, so he had been in at least three different areas of his own experience. And when he comes to the Netherlands and he's and there's a plague there, um, he's noting very quickly the differences in burial practice uh, between what's go the way it was done perhaps in Geneva and the way it was done in the Netherlands. And at least at that time frame. Um, in the early 17th century, uh, people were frequently buried under the, under the floor of the church, under the stone. And so Reve's shock is that while a sermon is going on, a plague victim is being buried in the midst of the congregation in the floor where they're pulling out other plague victims that had previously died so that the sermon can go on and they can inter the, the body. And he's saying, we have got to change. Uh, we've got to change our, our practices and the way that some of these burial practices are going on. So the, this deeply shaped understanding, he was arguing that cemeteries should be outside the city as a whole, um, and was also arguing a little bit against wealth and privilege. Uh, you should be willing to be buried in a common grave among commoners waiting for the resurrection, not necessarily under monuments and all these other forms. So he's to commenting not only on uh, the burial practice in the church, but he's also commenting a little bit on the social context and distinctions hmm. that are even being maintained in death. And he's pondering as a Reformed pastor, biblically, how should a Christian think about the resurrection? Uh, so there's, that's, that's the, quote, digression on the end of his letter uh, about the plague. He talks about then about what is the proper burial practice. Hmm. That's just one example from Marve. Um, well, let's take a look at, uh, well, before we actually take a look at some of the documents, I wanted to ask the process, how did this book come about? Obviously, I imagine it was a, the pandemic, was a catalyst, uh, but how did you go from an idea of a book of writings about plagues to actually having the book in our hands today? Well, it didn't start as a, an idea even for a book. It was uh, started in a faculty meeting, and we were sort of going around talking about various projects we're working on and our ideas for projects we have. And uh, Todd made uh, a somewhat offhand comment about there being this body of literature uh, called the uh, an, uh, genre called Ars Moriendi, the art of, of dying, and mm -hmm. that he was thinking of uh, translating uh, a piece maybe for a journal uh, that uh, had to do with uh, plague. And I thought, I remember hearing that at the faculty meeting and thinking, that seems, seems interesting. I wonder if there could be a wider readership for uh, such an article uh, than a, a journal. Uh, and so I, uh, I think it wasn't long after that faculty meeting where we were chatting, mm -hmm. and I, I said, well, uh, you mentioned this body of literature. How big is this body? And he said, how big do you want? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And that's what made me think that there, you know, there, there could be a lot here. There still is a lot. There still yeah. is, see, uh, volume two. And, uh, <laughs> and so that I, I got in touch with uh, Josh Curry at Westminster Seminary Press. And, uh, and this, was, this was around uh, J July of 2020. Mm -hmm. And uh, so th things were still very uncertain about mm -hmm. COVID, mm -hmm. what it is, how mm -hmm. dangerous is it. Uh, how do we respond as Christians? How do we respond as churches? How do we think about this as, as uh, Christian men and women? So 
we discussed together uh, about uh, what pieces to include uh, and uh, you know uh, what would sort of be the shape and, and purpose of this volume and uh, and it sort of grew as we mentioned earlier from that, that mm -hmm. early uh, 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 set of tracks and treatises to the volume mm. you have there. And so Todd, talk us through just briefly the process of translating. You've done most of the translating. Sure. Um, you get a piece in Latin and uh, what do you do with it? Apart from stare at it for three hours and think. <laughs> well, the the first thing I do is I uh, because uh, what what fascinated me about this piece was because of Johannes Hornbeek. Um, Johannes Hornbeek was an ex, was a practical theologian. He was a scholastic theologian uh, among the Reformed at at Utrecht, and he felt the need as a practical theologian uh, in in a Dutch Orthodox confessional environment. We need resources. And he had that sense. And so he puts together this piece, and I start digging into it and realizing, oh, wow, the footnotes alone are going to take me over the hill into another realm of just research. You know, mm. It's easy to perhaps read these folks and think that the Reformed are the only ones talking about it. Mm. And so what this piece did as far as a translation process is every time you have someone like Beza or Footsius or Hornbeek that cites a Lutheran on pastoral ministry, now I have to read both. And so it was a wonderful blessing for me, but the process is, 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 is in one sense, it's a linear process. You read through the piece, and you get a sense of the whole, and then you go back and translate it. On another sense, it's a spiral, because as you read through Reve, and he talks about how Cyprian should be in the hands of every pastor every day, <laughs> you know, on mortality, mm. then you're starting doing this comparative reading back and forth to understand context and how it's being used. And so I can just, you can just multiply that. Footsius mm. is reading, it seems, almost everybody. He's reading, uh, law, he's reading lawyers. He's reading uh, Roman Catholic uh, confessional manuals. He's reading Lutheran ministry manuals. Mm. He's reading everyone and trying to just harness the weight of the literature that he has in front of him mm. and bring it to bear on this question. And so it's, it's, it's humbling because of the amount of, of literature that they're trying to master in their own period to answer the questions and the pressing needs of their church. But it's also exceedingly encouraging because they're trying to grapple with the same thing that we are, in a sense. So the translation process, I would read through it um, over the course of maybe a week or so and then uh, dig in, and it would, it would take shape from there. Um, part one, you know, this is probably about 160,000 words. Uh, the translation started in earnest. I would say I had pieces of it in April and May of 2020, but it started in earnest in July once we had the green light mm. from the press and so many other wonderful supporters that assisted with this volume mm -hmm. um, that made it possible. At that point, it was, um, you know, I think every day there's some aspect of plague I'm reading about, you know, mm. in, in the midst of other duties. Here's mm. one more thing to, to just mm. work through. And I think from there, from July to, I think we put the last edit on in July of this past year. Is that right? Yeah. Sounds right. Hmm. So I would say for this volume, um, it took probably about a year to put out this this piece, hmm. this set collection of pieces. Yeah. So you, you did most of the, or all of the translating, Todd. Stephen, you wrote introductions to each of the mm -hmm. uh, treaties, sermons. Yeah, mostly. Um, mostly. Todd did write a couple. Okay. Uh, what, what, what were you trying to achieve in writing the introductions? What, what are you trying to give the reader? And a window into. Yeah, it's uh, 
sometimes four-page pieces can be more difficult than you know 30-page <laughs> pieces because you're trying to distill often very complex thought and uh, argumentation and distill it uh, to draw out the main point. Why, why is this important for people to still read today? Mm. Uh, draw out the, the main point and draw those connections uh, from the 16th century to the 21st century and uh, really highlight the big picture of the argument and, uh, and why this is a timeless truth that is mm. really still relevant in, in so many ways. Mm. Mm. Without, without, I should say, mention without mm. in any way diminishing uh, the historical context. Mm -hmm. You know, or under underestimating the historical situatedness of the text mm -hmm. in which it was written, the time in which it was written. Mm. Well, let's dive into some of the pieces in here, and I'm going to go first to the appendix uh, to this piece by Cyprian, which was called by Fuzius that Golden Sermon of Cyprian, and uh, I think it was Rivet who said it was the exquisite work. Um, what is it about? this sermon by Cyprian. Uh, we know that it was quoted a lot, um, and that's why you wanted to put it in from an academic point of view. Here's mm -hmm. the source text they're all referring to. But, but why do you think it's actually important for pastors today to actually, if they get the time, to read this sermon by Cyprian? Called uh, On Mortality. On Mortality was, uh, mortality yeah. was the name uh, yeah. for the plague. Mm -hmm. uh, how Cyprian referred to the plague hmm. in, in his day. Uh, the uh, church in Carthage had just gotten over a severe persecution, uh, the Decian persecution, not long before the plague swept in. Hmm. And uh, these many young Christians were deeply troubled by these, the trials and the severity of the trials that they're experiencing. And understandably wondering, uh, you know, why did I become a Christian? You know, I thought <laughs> following Jesus was supposed to, to make life, life better. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Cyprian writes this, and most think it was, it was delivered as a sermon first in some form. And he writes this to encourage Christians, but to encourage them in a somewhat challenging tone, challenging mm -hmm. them uh, to really embody their confession. What is it that you believe? What have you professed? What is the nature of our Christian faith? And how should that shape how we live, how we hope, um, how we suffer? He makes the point in there that uh, Christians, far from uh, expecting a better life, having become a Christian, have now made themselves not only subject to the Right. Slings and arrows of the you know, sickness and the normal trials of human life, but also attacks of the devil. So mm. you've thrown him into the mix. Mm. And he sets this forth sort of like, uh, well, what did you expect? <laughs> and with that, you know, but w what do we have in the lasting treasure that is ours in Christ? Mm. And how does this eternal perspective shape our lives in the here and now? Mm. And uh, so it's a wonderfully encouraging work still, mm. and uh, yet powerful and, and challenging. Mm. When I read through it this afternoon, the thing, the two words sort of came to me, and I thought the way to describe this piece on mortality is uh, otherworldliness. Mm -hmm. 
he just keeps projecting the believer to the world to come. He talks about us being um, people who have departed from us. He says uh, we should not lament them. They are not lost to us. They've just been sent before. Mm -hmm. uh, that departing from us, they precede us as travelers, as navigators are accustomed to do. That they should be desired, not bewailed. That the black garments should not be taken upon us here when they have already taken upon them white raiment. Mm -hmm. And it's this, this whole sort of focus on heaven, mm -hmm. that that is where our, our treasure is, that is where we belong, we're passing through. So don't mourn too severely. Right. I mean, of course, mourn right. the death yeah. of your loved ones, but you should be rejoicing because that's where we're all going. And plague, in a sense, is just the doorway into death, which mm -hmm. is the doorway mm -hmm. into heaven. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's what struck me about it. Yeah, the whole piece can be read. It's, it's not uh, an exegesis of this text, but I think it can helpfully be read as, uh, as a reflection on Paul's words for me to live as Christ mm. and to die as gain. Mm. Uh, do we really think that? That mm. it is better for me to die? I'm, mm. I'm mm. gaining so much more mm. than what this world could ever offer. Mm. And, uh, and how does that place our sufferings in perspective, uh, your reading that made me think of one of my favorite passages uh, from the piece, the um, where Cyprian writes about the sufferings that believers endure. He says these are trainings for us, not deaths. Mm -hmm. They give us the mind. They give the mind the glory of fortitude. Uh, by contempt of death, they prepare for the crown. Mm. By contempt of death, these sufferings help us to prepare for the the crown. Hmm. Yeah, I uh, would really recommend anyone who gets the book, if you don't have time to read it all, read the, the appendix. Are you ever told to do that with a book? Skip the rest of the book and just go straight to the appendix because it it's worth the price of the book alone. And again, for pastors who may be listening online, I, I think the benefit of this book is really hard to describe for pastoral ministry. The, the rich... Um, material pastors, I think, would get for sermons, mm. for counseling, you know, people in their congregation, and for our own Christian lives to reorientate and recalibrate our hearts, uh, that, that we are just a passing through this world, mm. you know. Um, let's get into the main body, away from the appendix, and uh, let's talk about some of the people in here who are, who are lesser known. We're going to go to that collection of essays at the beginning that uh, Hornbeek puts together. So, Henri Rivet, I'm uh, tempted to say rivet, just to poke my colleague Bill Edgar, <laughs> uh, who uh, speaks the beautiful language of French. But uh, Henri Rivet, he writes a letter to a friend. Do we know who the friend is? We don't. Uh, I think from the letter you can tell that it's another pastor, another okay. theologian. It's someone who's weighing... He's, he's, Whoever's right, whoever Reve is responding to is weighed down by this, the issue of plague in his own congregation. Mm -hmm. And the, the question that's motivating them, the problem, one of the problems they're having is you have people in this period that, have, that are very wealthy and they might have a home in the city and they might have a country residence. Mm -hmm. And the, the people that work for them as domestics in the, in the city, if the nobleman and his family leaves, those people are out of a job. And they're out of a job in the middle of a plague. 
And so one of the questions that's being asked from a Christian perspective is, is what is the role and responsibility? Who's essential in this society in the time of plague? And how do you think through your obligations? Uh, so at the center of this letter, besides the discussions about the nature of death and disease and, these, and means, God working through secondary causes and these sorts of things, there's also a deep sense of vocation and calling. What are your responsibilities um, to those around you? And how do you think through that biblically? So the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wealth of information, I think, in this one. Um, the first thing that motivates this discussion is, is that there's a big debate among reform ministers debating about whether or not the plague is even infectious, whether or not it's even real, how, much, how many measures we should take. And uh, he does something very wonderful. He says, I, I, would, lo- I would want that all good people yeah, that, that are encountering this, whatever their view is on these other things, all that all good people would take this as an opportunity to repent. If we can start there with what the spiritual issue is, hmm. then, then we can work out these other policy questions on a, on a case-by-case and maybe location-by-location basis. Hmm. But the issue before pastors is how do you meet people, like with what Cyprian would say, the necessity to examine your own heart. Hmm. This is the opportunity you have in front of you as a pastor spiritually, hmm. is use this as an opportunity to put that in front of your people. Hmm. And that's where this is... Um, that's where you find that, that, that encouragement about the nature of repentance. Hmm. Um, now, you mentioned there that he's dealing with different approaches, different perspectives on it, something that I think we couldn't identify with today. Because <laughs> uh, uh, we've all thought the exact same about COVID. But um, <laughs> what is it that he's experiencing? What are the different approaches or responses to the plague? Uh, can you just situate us again, or help us situate Reve? Where is he? What period? Reve um, is writing in the 1620s and 30s. Mm-hmm. He's in the Netherlands. He's in the midst of an outbreak. He's writing this from uh, The Hague, which is near Leiden. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, he, he tells you in the very first paragraph, he says this, quote, A few godly and certainly God-fearing men question whether one ought to take precaution for that evil, the evil of plague either by keeping separate or staying away from visiting those who either have been infected or who have visited infected places. Other equally godly and prudent men assert that this can be done and even must be done, yet with many appropriate requirements and qualifications applied. I am not one who thinks that I can construct a case for for or against either side, such that I would lead all parties to one viewpoint. So even in the 1620s and 30s, he's recognizing we've got a diversity of views here. We all agree that God's sovereign. Mm-hmm. We all agree that we have responsibilities and, and how to handle our vocations, but they're not agreed in various uh, details, mm-hmm. and it's leading to conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And people are calling, uh, Christians are calling other Christians unchristian in mm-hmm. the way that they're handling something mm-hmm. because they differ on certain matters of detail. Yeah. Now, we've had the whole controversy over masks, vaccines. We're not going to get into that. But. What was it they were debating? Was it fleeing or staying? Well, some if you in Beza's piece, one of the things you find in Beza is Beza was there were people that were debating whether or not plague was even infectious, hmm. because since God is sovereign, and you won't die unless it's your time, hmm. then should you even entertain the medical concept of infection? Hmm. And so Beza's got an argument about yes, the reform to take a position that infection is part of, the, of one of the secondary mm-hmm. causes, and you take measure. 
Um, and so Reve is building on that context. Um, and it's, it's getting into questions of pastoral visitation. Mm-hmm. It's getting into questions of whether or not you can absent yourself from society. You know, how do you love your neighbor if you have to be separate from them? Mm-hmm. That's part of the context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it gets, it gets into some very, they get into some very practical um, matters such as, okay, if, uh, if a pastor does flee, how is the congregation going to be cared for? If he doesn't flee and dies, how are we going to get more pastors? And these are these are very mm. important, pressing mm. life and death questions. Uh, but one of the one of the things that I think you do find to be consistent among all of them is that uh, God's sheep need to be cared for. Mm. The question is how, mm-hmm. and there's sometimes disagreement on on how. But there there was agreement that without question we need to care mm. for for God's people. Mm. Um, as, mm. as shepherds of the flock. And so it is, it is striking to, to find both mm-hmm. uh, places of, of disagreement, right. uh, or d- differences in policy, but also seeing profound levels of uh, mm. theological agreement in terms of calling, mm. in terms of w- what the church is, and uh, how their ministers especially are called to care for. Mm. There's, a, there's an interesting moment in several of these pieces where there's, there's the country church, town church thing going on. That is, you've got big city churches that have multi-staff situations. Mm-hmm. And they're thinking through, how do we care for the sick in an environment where we can keep the sick and the well separate? And we can minister to some degree where we have some, some ministers were, told, were, were detailed off to deal with those that were sick, and you had others that would handle the well. Um, but that wasn't, there was realizations that that might not be possible in, say, a rural environment where you have a single pastor in a congregation that has sick and well in it. So now what do you do? Mm-hmm. And they're talking through the, what is the role of the congregation in comforting others? Are there folks that can be used and detailed by the, by the um, congregation to minister um, with very practical sorts of comfort? Uh, in these contexts of sickness. And so you've got some very interesting, uh, rich variegations. It's not just there's one sort of church and model of ministry in this period as far as the staffing is concerned. Um, that's an interesting issue in the 16th, 17th century as well. Something else I, I found striking was the willingness of uh, these theologians to identify some people as more important than others. There's some pastors we'd rather protect them because of who they are. I think that that strikes most of us as uh, sort of unfair. Hmm. You know, we're all equally special. But uh, you know, the, the question of uh, you know should should Beza, for example, be uh, among the pastors going to visit plague vis- victims? Hmm. I think he was reluctant, or, or he you know he was willing to go, but hmm. uh, reluctantly accepted the decision of the council. Uh, to refrain from from visiting because of his position, hmm. and you think hmm. of uh, uh, something uh, motivating uh, Zanki and his uh, position was his friendship with Bullinger, mm-hmm. and he he recounts how Bullinger went and visited a plague victim, hmm. and brought the the sickness back into his own home, and while he survived, his wife and daughter died, hmm. and so. This isn't theory for these mm. individuals. This is mm. a life and death mm. uh, matters mm. that need to be handled with the, the utmost care. Mm. 
Mm. Which brings us to uh, Gisbertus Futius. Yes. Um, a treatise on the plague or a spiritual antidote to the plague. Um, I read in your helpful introduction that he was to the Dutch church what John, John Owen was to the English Puritan movement. He was this big brain, uh, not as well known in some respects, but uh, you talk about his intellectual breadth and depth was quite breathtaking. Yeah. What was it about his breadth uh, and depth of <laughs> yeah. dealing with this that <laughs> if was breathtaking? Sometimes... Uh, and I, I'd encourage readers, perhaps at this point, to press on with Hesius. Uh, if you get sort of bogged down, just just keep going, um, because at times his his treatise reads like a bibliography. It's just one uh, reference after another, and uh, you'll you'll be grateful to know that Todd went ahead and chased down every single one of those references and put them in the footnote. Uh, so you have those for uh, for the curious, for the curious, <laughs> or the idle, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but uh, when you take a step back and look at what he's doing there, you see that it, one his mastery of the available literature was just breathtaking. He's working in. How many different languages? You would probably know. Uh, he's got French, Dutch, German, Latin. Uh, he's, he's reading some Italian and Spanish works. He's also got uh, references to Arabic treatises that have been translated into Hebrew. He's working with the rabbinic and Talmudic backgrounds. Yeah. And tracking down those footnotes when he just gives you scant yeah. sources, it, it, it was... I had some very patient editors that were asking me, he's <laughs> like, so when can we expect Footsius? It's like... It's going to sound millenarian, perhaps today, <laughs> because there's an element here where it takes that much time just to, to wade through mm. what he's doing. Mm. Um, and he's working with, I mean, there were terms in the, in, he was using yeah. from rabbinic and Talmudic sources that, that were stumping our, Hebrews, our, our, our mm. Hebrew scholars. So I remember helping Stephen with lots of them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's right, that's right, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I didn't even get mentioned in the... <laughs> <laughs> I need all the help I can get. Um, yeah, so, so with Futsius, uh, his mastery of these sources, his engagement with them shows, you know, he's a, he was himself a, a Hebraist mm -hmm. and an Orientalist. Um, and uh, his, and at heart, a theologian, and yet he's also going outside theology, going outside scriptures to try to understand science and philosophy and meteorology mm -hmm. and all these other disciplines in order to make an informed mm. uh, uh, judgment on the matters that mm. he and the church are presented with mm. uh, when it comes to mm. the plague. Yeah. I think what I find interesting about Phidias was he gets into the issue of pastoral visitation. You were mentioning it earlier. And he starts engaging with Jerome Sankey and Joseph Hall. And do you want to give us a bit of window into the, what, what that is? At some point, he just starts laying down the basis for pastoral care. Mm -hmm. and he's differing with them yes. on stuff. What, give us his approach. Well, one of the things that I think that's important to realize is the different experiences of Zanke and, and Futsius. Um, Zanke's really... Uh, he's a grieving friend of Bullinger who lost a wife and child to plague because he went and visited a sick uh, congregant. And um, 
on the other, and so Zonke's writing all these different aspects of here's how we think through ministry in such an environment. And Footsius, on the other hand, his experience was, uh, I believe his, he and his wife both had the plague and survived. Hmm. So he's, his approach in some ways is colored by that reality. Hmm. This is survivable. And how you do pastoral care in, in that environment, yes, you, you prepare yourself by realizing that you are called to this. Um, but at the same time, um, I think it's, it's also the intensity of that uh, Nador Reformatsi environment, that is, that se- Dutch Second Reformation environment, and the importance of uh, conversion, the importance of closing with Christ, the importance of that um, earnest engagement in, in Christian experience. And there's, there's riches that he brings here to that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I would say about Footsius is he's walking through, he has 12 different objections that he's dealing with in that, how do you handle these pastoral questions, uh, which is a really fascinating um, a point to note. When he originally wrote this edition that you have in front of you, it came out in a context of the university debates. It was the issue of disputations among students. So students are presenting this. This has been lectured on in class, and it's being presented. And then it gets published. Well, you'll notice throughout our our translation that there's places where it's the 1667 addendum, where there's things where Footsius edited through this treatise again towards the end of his life, 12 years after Hornbeck had published his earlier compilation. And so this was not an issue that was considered light for Footsius. He keeps going back to it and thinking and trying to polish and precise his, his theories and his thoughts on pastoral care. Hmm. So this is not a kind of a one-and-done, I have spoken, this is all settled. Hmm. He's, he's mulling over it for a good 25, 30 years, hmm. Hmm. which tells me, if someone like Footsius is occupied with this for two or three hmm. decades, it, it should at least give us a sense hmm. of circumspect hmm. care hmm. as we think through the varieties of pastoral service on questions hmm. like, visitation and pastoral care of the sick and the dying. Mm. I mean, this thing that struck me today reading it was his, his emphasis on pastoral care. So while Sankey and others are saying we need to spare, be careful of people like Bullinger, maybe they shouldn't be visiting the sick. He's like, it's in your ordination vows. That's right. You go visit the sick. That's and right. And leave it, leave it to God, mm. what happens to you. That's but, right. But as you say, his... His experience was, I mean, he's walking around with natural immunity, so, <laughs> so he, he's, he's... If it was a virus, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's clearly come through it, and so he's got a bit more confidence. But it's just interesting, his, his uh, focus on that, of well, the importance of the pastor caring for the sheep. One of the ways that the plague shaped uh, the pastoral vows from the 16th to the 17th century, um, it's not in this work, because it's, it's a, just a minor minute uh, in a synod, in a synodical notes and say the French Reformed churches on the question of plague. This, a question comes from one synod to the general synod on whether or not pastors can flee during times of plague um, and what is the nature of pastoral care. And the, syn- the, the general synod does a very Presbyterian thing. It kicks it back down to the lower court and says, you guys figure it out as a, on an ad hoc basis. Mm-hmm. What should be done in your local congregations? There's going to be variegations. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that shows up besides the, those sorts of approaches is they're starting to have conversations about you need, we need to put this in the vows, that if you're a pastor and you're tasked with caring for this congregation, you cannot abandon them. 
you know, in, throughout mm -hmm. these works, the two essential functions in society during a plague are magistrates and ministers. Mm -hmm. And their callings cannot be abandoned lightly, nor can they be disrespected lightly because of their calling in some measure is, a, is, is, a, is for the good of, of God's people and for the good of human life in general. And those are both good things in the view of, uh, yeah. of, of, in the view of Christians. So there's some elements here that between the 16th century and the 17th century, you see churches uh, and the ministerial vows developing and evolving because of some of these realities. If a minister can flee in time of plague, then they're gone. You know, and what happens mm -hmm. to the congregation? And so congregations and um, synodical bodies are saying, not only do you have to be a confessional orthodox minister, but there's an orthodox practice mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. the commitment of ministers mm -hmm. to, the, to the flock. Mm -hmm. Now, the final reason people should read Phidias is because of a final comment he makes, mm -hmm. which is a tweet that if we can get it out there, which should hopefully start trending by the end of tonight. Do one of you want to give us what that comment is or that sentence that he comes out with? If I can get it right. Uh, conquer the fear of death and you will conquer the fear of the plague. Yeah, conquer the fear of death and you'll conquer the fear of the plague. That's right, yeah. And I think it's a window into their focus. They're engaging with the plague. It's their real life experience. But as we are talking earlier with Cyprian and others, they're pointing us to face death but look beyond mm -hmm. death. Right. faith in the Savior mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the life of the world to come. But uh, I think that's just a magnificent quote that's just so relevant for our day. Mm. You see the fear and anxiety today. Whatever your view on the virulency of the COVID is, the fact is death has come back mm. to face us all at some level. It's more talked about now, uh, but it's really a fear of the plague or fear of COVID. But it's actually the fear of death is the bigger issue, isn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, conquer that and you conquer the fear of the plague. So, um, Luther's peace. Um, what's so interesting about that, Stephen? Uh, it's classic Luther, who's almost always interesting and uh, not a little bit uh, funny. It's, uh, it's a striking piece. Uh, I was... I was uh, I, what I found interesting was that it was, like so many of the pieces here written out of a personal experience of the plague. I, I try to relate a little bit of this in the, uh, the introduction to it. He was uh, written a letter by uh, Johann Hess, a pastor, and it was, at, it was a letter asking the question, is it legitimate for a minister to flee the plague? What so many are asking. And he didn't, he didn't answer it um, immediately. Uh, but the, between the time he got the letter and between the time he, he answered it, the plague broke out in Wittenberg. And uh, the school got out of the city, uh, and the professors got out of the city, and the elector told Luther to get out of the city, and Luther does exactly what you'd expect him to do. He stays in the city and uh, stays with his, his friend Bugenhagen, and they minister to the, the sick, and he writes a letter. Uh, to a friend, I think, outside of the city at, at this point, and the letter is just describing how miserable it is. It sounds awful. <laughs> and it's in this, and it's out, it's, you know, during this time that he writes this, this treatise. So it's, again, not theoretical, not abstract for him. It's deeply personal. Uh, should, uh, is it, uh, as a minister, allowed to flee the plague? And 
Uh, he puts it along the lines, broadly speaking, of what the others would, would say as well. You know, ministers and magistrates should stay. Um, but he, he has this sort of caveat where he says, you know, if your faith is weak, you can go. And if your faith is strong, you should stay. Because if you're going to die, you're going to die. And uh, if your faith is weak, tell God, Lord, I have weak faith, and so I'm going to flee. Uh, but I know I can die even if I flee. And if your faith is strong, you say, Lord, my life is in your hands, and uh, you stay. But the governing factor in all of it, he says, is love for God and love for neighbor. Right? Whatever you end up doing, he says, it needs to be uh, not out of fear, but out of love. And uh, it's a wonderful reminder, and accompanied by a wonderful sort of Lutheranisms where he tells you what to say to the devil. <laughs> and, uh, and as the devil's tempting you to fear, how you tell the devil, you know, I'm going to go visit my sick neighbor just to spite you. <laughs> you know, the, this, this sort of thing. And, uh, and uh, deeply encouraging piece. Mm. Oh, mm. You haven't read it. Mm. Um, just briefly, final piece just to touch on. John Rowlett, Anglican minister, 17th century, writes a letter yeah. to his mother because he thinks he's going to die. But he never, yeah. he never gets to send it because he doesn't yeah. die from the plague at, at first. Yeah. That's but important. They, the letter is discovered later on. Yeah, that's important. He was not a hypochondriac. Mm -hmm. He was living in London during the uh, last major plague in London, uh, 1666, if memory serves. Mm -hmm. And he was working there, and the plague devastated the city. Mm -hmm. he had, death was all around him. He had... Uh, good reason to think that there's a good chance he would not he would not survive this, and so he writes this letter to his mother. As he said, he doesn't die, mm -hmm. he doesn't send it, um, and it's discovered later. And it's it's a it's a wonderful piece uh, because it's and it's you know it's called called it's a letter to my mother. It sounds sentimental and uh, you know precious. It's mm -hmm. it's not. It's a, a son uh, trying to comfort his mother mm -hmm. in anticipating his death and thinking, what would I like my mother to know? Mm. And uh, reminding her out of the deep gratitude he has for the gospel she taught him, reminded, mm. reminding her of those very same gospel truths. And mm. you can sort of see the faith of the parent being echoed back uh, mm. to the, uh, mm. the surviving mother mm. in uh, in his imagination. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so he pens this letter to her, uh, reminding her of God's wisdom, so much greater than our wisdom, God's providence, uh, how these losses in this life loosen our grip mm -hmm. on the, the things that would hold us down and keep us from loving God more. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, and uh, so he co comforts his mother sort of... Uh, from afar. Hmm. Doesn't end up sending it, but uh, was published years later, and uh, we thought it'd be great to include to see how it continue hmm. to minister to us today. There's a great line from that letter where he says hmm. this. Um, I desire in the first place to bless God for you 
and then to return you my humblest thanks for all the love you have manifested both to my soul and body. I bless and praise my God, who so graciously consulted my happiness that I should be born of a Christian parent, of a true believer, and that he made me a new member, not only of that visible church, but of the mystical body of Christ. This I really take for a greater happiness than to have been born of the most honorable lady, queen, or empress in the world. And from my heart, I trust, I have often returned thanks to God that he so disposed of my birth. That I was not heir to honor or riches, the usual snares of souls, but that I had the happy advantage of a pious upbringing. (laughs) Mm, that's yeah. why this book, this letter's in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very moving. And to think of the providence of God that she never got to read it, mm-hmm. and take it, and yet it is a letter that is so moving but so pastorally helpful mm-hmm. for all of us mm-hmm. today. And it's in the book for fifteen dollars. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, just to bring it to a a bit of a close. Uh, what do you hope people don't take away from this book? The idea that you can cut and paste this into COVID situation that we have as a cure-all. Mm. It's not snake oil. <laughs> okay. What it is is an opportunity to reflect on what is the nature of your life. What is the nature of true repentance? What is the nature of um, godly doctrine, well applied and faithfully practiced? I think if you if we could start that conversation, I think it would be of greater use to our churches and our friends and neighbors and our families. Hmm. Stephen, what do you in addition yeah. to that, what do you hope people take away from the book? Yeah, that the, among the differing views and opinions, there is a fundamental theological agreement hmm. about who God is, uh, how Christians should live faithfully before His faith. How do we live by faith in the face of death? Uh, There's so much there that uh, is agreed upon and which is articulated in a variety of ways, and it's done so for the purpose of comforting God's people, uh, to use Ursinus' language, both in life and in death. Mm -hmm. That's that's the real uh, pastoral heartbeat that Mm -hmm. really, uh, I think, Mm -hmm. you find in all of these works. Mm -hmm. I hope people would... uh, Mm read that and appreciate that and be Mm. ministered to by it. Mm. Well, uh, you've blessed the church, I think, with a a wonderful volume. It's uh, it's academic, it's rigorous, all the footnotes are there (laughs) for foot days. But it's also so practical and pastoral. And so thank you for your hard work. And uh, I pray that the book is uh, prosperous and uh, gets into many people's hands on on many pastor's shelves. uh, this is what we're about at Westminster. We're not just about doing um, academic work. We want to do the best academic work we can. We want it to be rigorous. And I think this book reveals that Westminster still is committed to that kind of thing. But at heart, we're about training uh, pastors uh, so that people can bring comfort in life and in death. And I think this book wonderfully marries those two things together. Mm. Uh, academic rigor with pastoral care and theology. Um, so thank you very much. Uh, good to have you on the podcast uh, of the afterward, a conversation about books, reading in the church, and uh, we look forward to having you on again when you uh, produce your volume two <laughs> or uh, some other translation. I know, Todd, you're working on Van Maastricht. Yes. 
and uh, hoping to produce volume three soon, I believe. Yes, uh, that will be coming out with uh, Reformation Heritage Books on behalf of the Dutch Reformed Translation Society, uh, mm. the Petrus van Maastricht's Theoretical Practical Theology. Mm. Um, it's a seven-volume work. We will have mm. volume three coming out, and then, Lord willing, four to seven coming out annually after that. Yeah. Um, and that's just a wonderful piece of mm. a manual of theology. There's other projects going on at Westminster. Um, there, the Usher letters, the letters mm -hmm. of Bishop Usher, um, and some other writings of Bishop Usher, some manuscripts that will help us understand the Westminster Confession better, mm -hmm. um, is, will be published as a critical text with a translation through Westminster Press. Mm -hmm. um, and then other things more to come along mm -hmm. those lines. Mm -hmm. um, this is the kind of opportunity that we have here, not only to, 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 to bless the church, but to train up pastors and theologians who can work in this material to mm. mine it, mm. to use it, that, the, that these resources that hide out in our libraries are brought <laughs> out in our classrooms and used in our, in our congregations. Mm. That's what we're, we want to see done. Yeah, that's great. And Stephen, any projects that you're working on that you hope can serve yeah. the church well? Yeah, still working on a commentary on some of the minor prophets mm -hmm. to come out with Crossway. Hopefully sooner rather than later, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, maybe uh, tw uh, 2022. Uh, and uh, also uh, working on uh, editing a translation of a commentary on Isaiah by Johannes Ecolampadius. Hmm. So uh, another early reformer mm -hmm. and uh, looking at his uh, work on Isaiah, which is a, a wonderful work being translated by Jonathan Rocky. And will that be out with a seminary press? That'll be out with a Reformation Heritage. Okay. Books, yeah. yeah. Great. Well, the Lord's richest blessings on both of your ministries, and uh, thank you again for joining us on the afterwards. Thanks, so, Johnny. Thank you. our appreciation. Okay, so uh, let's open it up to questions uh, from the floor. Uh, if you want to say your question, I'll repeat it. Maybe that will help. I think we're still rolling live here. So, Yes. Um, your book, thank you, thank you very much for sharing. Sure. Really amazing uh, treatise on the history of plagues in, our, in the church. I'm wondering if, you know, the plagues that, that you speak about really ravaged their communities and shaped the lives and ministries of the churches. Do you think that, at the risk of becoming a little political, do you think that COVID will be taken as seriously as these, or do you think it would have been meant as a chopping block in a book of, about plagues? Well, the writings, I think, of this period are not just theological. Uh, if you read through the Footsius piece, he's dealing with all kinds of laws. They're, he's looking at Italian laws. He's looking at French laws, Spanish laws, different codes and responses to the plague. You know, it, we talk about social distancing. They were doing that too. One Italian author thought that the best, the best approach to plague was to keep about 50 to 60 paces away from someone. Um, some of the quarantines that are being enacted in this, in this early modern period had the city guard at your door with halberds. Um, so there's different layers of experience involved in this. So um, I think w w to frame it properly, um, we would be best served in our churches if we put this as a matter of, uh, of general repentance and, and call to hope in the resurrection 
so that we would um, exercise endurance. Um, Questions? Um, fairly simple question. Um, which of these, besides Supreme Court, um, do you guys, was your favorite? Or mm. do you guys find the most satisfying? And also, um, if, let's say, someone doesn't have time to read all of them. And besides Supreme Court as well, that's a fair which question. Dr. Gibson really highlighted, which mm -hmm. one would you guys recommend that we spend, you know, a little bit more time on it, a little bit more effort. Yeah. So let me just repeat the question so people can hear it online. So uh, which did you enjoy working on the most? And uh, if there is one piece other than the appendix uh, that you could would recommend, mm -hmm. someone only has time to read one, what would it be? So Stephen. Yeah, I would probably recommend Ursinus's Godly Meditation on Death. It's... Uh, you know, it begins with reflections on funerals and the importance of funerals. And uh, we, in wor working on it uh, with, with Todd, I was reminded of how in our culture we push the, the dying and the dead to the, to the side, to the peripheries. And it can make for a very sanitary uh, Existence, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But what it, it does is it it doesn't parade before our eyes on a daily basis the reality that one day we will die. And I can see how, from an unbelieving perspective, uh, that there is a comfort in that. But we know that that's a false comfort. Uh, it's not true. The truth is we will die, and so to be reminded regularly. And Ursinus is saying, let's take funerals as opportunities to be reminded of your mortality so that you're, uh, you, you repent of your sins. You'll trust more deeply and uh, heartily on Christ and the sufficiency of his work for you. You will contemplate uh, the glories of the world to come so that the things of this world would have less of a stranglehold on your heart. Um, I think it's an important reminder uh, for for Christian, really for everybody, but for for Christians especially, uh, to be uh, daily thinking of uh, the reality that one day we will face our Judge and our Maker, and where is our hope? Where is our hope? Besides Ursinus, uh, one that I would say for busy pastors and uh, anyone that wanted a, a brief treatise that gets you into a lot of the major issues. Uh, the the Lavater commentary, that's uh, that's it's a, it's a basic scripture commentary that he's working on. I think would be really encouraging because in that he talks about the character of a prophet um, and the role of of the ministry in in speaking. You know, today the catchphrase frequently is truth to power, and here you have he's talking about the necessity of pastors to be faithful to the word, to preach faithfully in the face of. Um, of their authorities, and at the same time, in that same treatise, he also talks about the nature of plague and the specific pastoral challenges that happen there. So as far as brevity, and um, I, would, I would choose the Lavender piece. If you, if you have more time for than the next one, I would say would be the, the Beza piece. The Beza piece is very important. 
Todd, you, you mentioned if you're a busy pastor. Is there another kind of, of pastor? If you are a not busy I, I, pastor, I was, come, I was, please come talk to us. I was being redundant. <laughs> please come talk to us. If yeah. you're not a busy pastor, you're clearly fleeing something. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And in that case, you could read the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, you need to read the whole That's thing. Right. <laughs> you have no excuse but to read the whole thing. Yeah, that's right. And write a book review and promote it in some <laughs> journal article. Um, I have a question here that came in online. Uh, Stephen, this one's for you. Uh, how does the Old Testament inform us on pastoral care in the time of plague? And how would a counseling professional learn from the Old Testament how to counsel during the time of plague? given the plagues in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Give me the first part of the question again. How does the Old Testament inform us on pastoral care in the time of plague? Well, there are numerous plagues throughout the Old Testament, as you all are probably well aware. Uh, These are occasions often of God's uh, direct and immediate punishment of his people for their sins, Uh, but not always. Not always. I think thinking of plague more generally, broadly, uh, illnesses that would afflict the community, even the uh, condition of leprosy could be considered a a plague of sorts. Um, Pastorally, something that comes out in, in this volume I think would be relevant, and that is that uh, even if a plague or a pandemic is is not a a direct uh, punishment uh, for sin. It is never. It should nevertheless be for Christians the occasion for repentance, hmm. uh, because in this we're we're mindful that the intrusion of of death, and I don't just mean death as the um, end of biological life, but death as the Old Testament envisions it, is anything which is contrary to the life that God created for uh, this world, uh, sickness being one of them. Anything that is a, a reminder of the reality of death in our experience should be occasion for believers to, uh, to repent. Mm. And so pastorally, general calls for uh, grief over sin, uh, uh, our sin and our the sin of our communities, the sin of our, our nation. This should be a matter of, of grief. We should be crying out in repentance for our own sins and uh, uh, seeking both the Lord's forgiveness and uh, new paths of righteousness. And so to point people in, in that direction, that this world is not as it should be, and we're, these are daily reminders, illnesses and so forth, are daily reminders mm-hmm. of that, and to point people to uh, the provision God has given us in His Son. Mm. Uh, the second part, what was the second part of the question? Uh, connected to the first, how would a counseling professional learn from the Old Testament? That's a really, I think, an extension of the first part of the question. But, um, yeah, it's, I mean, uh, plagues and the affliction and the misery and the sorrow that comes from them is is a misery and the sorrow for the individual who is stricken. But remember, it's also a a misery and a sorrow for the community, the most immediate community being the family, Uh, the the broader communities of their neighborhoods and especially their churches and their church family. Mm -hmm. Uh, when When one part of the body is suffering, the whole 
the whole body is suffering and they, and, and they all need the comfort that is offered in Christ at those, at those moments. And so I'm not sure the, the answer is really that different than, than the one I just gave, you know, that uh, a reminder that, th- that this is a, a truly sad reality. The fact that God does bring good out of tragedy, out of sickness and sorrow, doesn't negate the fact that these are that these are tr- sad and tragic and undesirable realities, and they can be named as such. Mm-hmm. And it is proper to grieve and to mourn and to to weep over them, but then to be reminding ourselves, those to whom we're counseling or ministering. Uh, what Paul says in First Thessalonians, that we do not grieve as those without hope. Mm. And so where is our hope? Mm. And to allow hope to uh, always be mingled with our grief. Mm. And that's what sets us apart, mm. I think, as believers. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Very helpful. Thank you. Any, yes, Eddie, another question? What were some of the most surprising and or helpful insights among these readings into pastoral care that you found? So let me repeat it for those online. What, what was the most surprising and helpful insights that you came across in these pieces? Uh, one practice, I would say, in the 16th, 17th century that I think is not part of a modern approach to dealing with situations is there were instances in the life of the Genevan church where someone had been tasked with taking care of the the sick as a pastor, and that person had died relatively quickly. And then then the city magistrate comes back to the church of Geneva and says, okay, we need another chaplain for the plague hospital. Who's up next? And there's a moment where the whole, all the pastors blink as to who's to volunteer. And the, the thought process from that point was, the word of God is clear, our calling is clear, but none of us are willing, or at least not eagerly willing to do so. And it was in those moments where they said, all right, in the name of God, amen, we're casting lots. Because the calling is clear, the need is clear. What is not clear is for us as to who's to do it. Mm-hmm. And so it was in those environments of the 16th and 17th century, in plague especially, is when you see questions of, of deep prayer and concern, how shall we navigate through this? The call is clear, the need is clear, who, who shall go? And in those moments, that's where you see the Reformed on the basis of the Old Testament saying the lot is cast into the lap. It belongs to the Lord. So that's a surprise. Um, I don't know that that would be some... Uh, it would be interesting to see the you know contemporary pastors and elders in sessions wander through that one. You know, uh, your local... Your local COVID ward or your local uh, ward here says, all right, the last pastor that was a chaplain has died of COVID. Who's next? Who will go? Who will go? Are we saying, here am I, send me? That, that would puts a starkness to it, and that was surprising, I think, was one element in the translation aspect there. The, the other thing on sale tonight are some weighted dice for pastors. If you want to <laughs> buy those. But yeah, they're weighted towards the numbers three and six. If you, uh, just keep that in mind. Loaded <laughs> dice are not exactly providence there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Good. Okay. I think uh, it's a good time to wrap up. And uh, thanks again uh, to Stephen and Todd for excellent book and uh, for this very, very informative and uh, enjoyable interview. Thanks yeah, very thank much. You, thank, thank you, Johnny. Thank you all. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>